Happy Saturday, everybody. Earlier this week, we talked about the rock-hewn churches in Lalibela, Ethiopia, and we mentioned the Solomonic dynasty and its last emperor, Haile Selassie. And previous hosts, Sarah and Dublina, did an episode on him, including his connection to the Rastafarian movement in February of 2011. So we are going to share that episode today. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And it seems like we're gradually stumbling upon kind of a sub-theme for the podcast here. It seems like situations keep cropping up in history in which someone's remains are discovered uncovered, identified, and then buried elsewhere. Yeah, like a variation of our main exhumation theme almost. Exactly. For example, take Ava Perone. I think that before our time, uh, Stefan Emiston History Class did a podcast on Ava Perone and how it took more than 20 years to bury her, and it was for political reasons. Her body traveled kind of all over the place, Italy, Spain, before finding its final resting place in Buenos Aires. And that was a little different because I think they kind of knew where her body was the whole time. Yeah. They were always afraid it was going to get stolen, though, I think. That was always a concern. Right. And then, of course, there was our recent podcast about Henry IV. We talked about him to kick off our bourbon series that has been ongoing. And his head was recently identified and will be reinterred this year with full state honors. So kind of along the same lines. And with today's episode, we have a similar sort of situation, though with a very different set of circumstances. The subject of this episode is Haile Selassie. He was the last emperor of Ethiopia, sometimes known to his subjects as the King of Kings and the Lion of Judah. And Time Magazine once even made him their Man of the Year members of the Rastafarian movement, um, which is how a lot of people know him, they even think of him as their messiah, yet he didn't receive a proper burial when he died in 1975. Yeah, it's always surprising the people who don't get the proper burial. Um, So his remains were exhumed from a makeshift tomb in 1992, um, but his official funeral didn't take place until the year 2000, so a pretty long gap between those two dates. And even then, when the funeral finally did happen, it was pretty controversial. It was tough to pull off. There was a lot of debate uh, with the current government of Ethiopia of how it should happen. Yeah, so why did it take nearly 30 years to bury a world-renowned leader? That's just part of what we're going to look at today, as well as the conflict between Ethiopia and Italy that put Haile Selassie on the map in the first place, on the international stage out there for everyone to know his name and see. Yeah, but, uh, you know, of course, before we talk about what put him on the map, we're going to talk about how he got to be emperor of Ethiopia in the first place, because he was not heir to the throne. It was not his destiny, uh, at least so it seemed. He was born to Farai Makonnen on July 23rd, 1892, and he was the son of a prince, Ras Makonnen. Ras means prince. Um, and his father was also a noted general and the chief advisor to the the emperor, who was Emperor Menelik II um, in power at the time that Tafari was born. Um, And he was related to the emperor, but not that closely. He was the emperor's grandnephew, and there were kids and grandkids who were in line to take the emperor's place. So it it didn't seem like this relatively distant um, kin would eventually rise to the throne. But little did they know, Tafari was pretty intelligent, and he impressed 
the emperor, Menelik, very early on. And so the emperor started appointing Tafari to these provincial governorships at the young age of 14. And he became governor first of Sadamo and then of the Harare province. So he's governing and his policies at the time were considered pretty progressive compared to what was out there. He wanted to decrease the power of the local nobility by pumping up the power of the central government. So, for example, one of the things that he did was develop a salaried civil service. Yeah, we have our minds so much on bourbons, too. This kind of reminded us of Richelieu and Louis XIV centralizing the government um, with, the, with the king or with the emperor. Um, but meanwhile, while the young Tafari is working on all this, the emperor dies in 1913, and his grandson, Liz Yasu, takes the throne. Um, but this young man is not very popular and not popular right from the start. Part of it was that he had converted to Islam and the majority of Ethiopians at this time were Christian. So his subjects weren't particularly happy with that point. Tafare, on the other hand, who was a devout Orthodox Christian, he comes to represent the Christian resistance at this time. So the country's younger generation, they support him for this and also because they're becoming enamored by his progressive tendencies. So with both of these things working for him, he's able to depose Li Jiasu in 1916. And that makes Menelik II's daughter, Zauditu, empress. But there's a problem with that because at the time it was considered unseemly for a woman to rule in her own right. So Rastafari is named regent and heir apparent to the throne. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because um, you normally think of a regent and a ruler working at least somewhat in tandem, especially if they're two adults. But this was not the case. The ruler, Zwaditu, is a pretty conservative empress compared to Rastafari, but he seemed to be the one who was really pulling a lot of the strings. He was the one moving his more progressive agenda forward. And it is pretty it is pretty progressive. In 1923, he gets Ethiopia admitted into the League of Nations, the relatively new League of Nations at that point. In 1924, he becomes the first Ethiopian ruler to ever go abroad. He visits Rome and Paris and London. And by 1928, he sort of elevated this regent position a little bit, and he takes the title King of Ethiopia. A little funny to have a king and an empress here. Um, and it sort of shows you where the true power falls. And his power is elevated even more in 1930 when Zaditu dies, making Rastafari emperor. It's then that he takes the name Haile Selassie, which means might of the Trinity. So now he's in, truly in power. He's the emperor. He is the emperor. But something else is happening at the same time in a land far away in Jamaica. About the last thing you could expect to happen. Yeah. Now, of course, a lot of us know the story, but at the time it would have been maybe kind of surprising to some people's ears. <laughs> I think so. When Haile Selassie became emperor, it fulfilled a prophecy or a prediction that Black leader and founder of the Back to Africa movement, Marcus Garvey, had made years before. What he had said at that time was, look to Africa for the crowning of a Black king. He shall be the redeemer. So when this comes true, so to speak, in Haile Selassie, Rastafarianism is born. It's obvious now where that name comes yeah. from. Rastafari. So a couple of primary Rastafarian beliefs are that 
the only true god is the late Ethiopian emperor Haile Selassie, and that Ethiopia is the true Zion, which was kind of a paradise on earth. And one of the key doctrines is that they'll someday return to Africa, from which their ancestors were taken as slaves. So those of you who maybe are fans of Bob Marley have heard some of this before. Bob Marley is very famous for being a Rastafarian. So, Yeah, but there's a, there's a weird element to all of this, and that's that Haile Selassie himself, who is being revered as the Messiah or as um, the only true God by Rastafarians, doesn't really go along with it himself because he's a devout Christian. So he never really accepts his status as a Messiah, as a deliverer um, that these people sort of thrust upon him. I think that's such a, what a strange, uh, what a strange deal to have going on there. Yeah. And I think when he was alive, people asked him about it, you know, did you, did you know about this? Did you know that you're considered a Messiah? And he was just kind of like, yeah, I've heard that, but you know, I don't, he I'm had just a man. Beliefs. I think yeah. he just said, he, I'm just a man. So. Well, and he also, I mean, at the time, at least, he had some major problems to deal with that without thinking about how he was considered a messiah by some. Yep. Pretty much as soon as he became emperor, he had some issues, primarily the rising tensions with Italy. Here's just a little bit of background on the situation between Italy and Ethiopia. Italy, which had colonized most of the Red Sea coast in the 19th century, had tried to invade Ethiopia before. Menelik's army had defeated the Italians back in 1896 at the Battle of Ottawa. And this was considered a big victory for Ethiopians and for Africa at the time. I think many sources have said that this was the first time an African army had actually met and defeated a European army in conventional battle. So... Big deal. Yeah, definitely a big deal. So if we fast forward, though, to Haile Selassie's reign, uh, we have Benito Mussolini in power. He has, by this point, become dictator of Italy in 1922. And initially, it seems like he's not that interested in Africa. In 1928, he even signed this Treaty of Friendship with Ethiopia, uh, which at the time was the last African region that was free from some sort of European control. So it seemed like um, Italy was backing off. Maybe Ethiopia and Italy would be cool with each other. That was not the case, though. And it wasn't long before Mussolini started changing his opinion about the country and his intentions. Uh, And that may have happened for a few different reasons. Yeah. For one thing, it's possible that he wanted to avenge the 1896 defeat. Some people suggest that. Um, Just conjecture at this point. But also, Mussolini as we know, was a fascist. And part of the whole fascist doctrine is that the state should try to expand its sphere of power and influence. So that was one thing. Another thing was he kind of just wanted to stick it to the rest of Europe at that point. He thought Italy had gotten a raw deal at the end of World War I. Great Britain and France had both increased their colonial holdings. And Italy didn't really get its share of the spoils from his point of view. Yeah, so he was he was looking to make some gains. Um, and the trouble officially started in December 1934. And that's when a royal Ethiopian force drove out this it- Italian encampment that was stationed at Walwal, which was an oasis on the Ethiopian territory. Uh, 
it seemed maybe from the Ethiopian perspective, like the Italians were a little too close. Maybe they shouldn't have been there. Uh, they were certainly a threatening presence. But the Italians really used it as an excuse to go after Ethiopia. Like, look, they're not uh, they're not treating this treaty in good faith. They're not following it. This is not a treaty of friendship if they're driving us away from this oasis. And so they start to gather up their forces in East Africa or the East African colonies to eventually mount an attack on Ethiopia. Right. So Haile Selassie sees this coming and he's pretty freaked out about it. He appeals to the League of Nations at this point, but they really don't take any serious steps to stop the Italians from waging attack. They issue kind of slaps on the hands, threats and promises. At one point, they restrict trade with Italy, but this doesn't really work either because countries involved, especially Britain and France, won't really commit to it. And there's a reason for that. (laughs) There is. It's mostly because members of the League, particularly Great Britain and France, as I mentioned, don't want to upset Mussolini too much. They wanted to keep up an alliance against, with Italy against Nazi Germany, so they didn't even really consider taking military action to defend Ethiopia at the time. Yeah, you know, they don't want to alienate Italy, um, and their own European concerns seem to trump those of Ethiopia. So on October 3rd, 1935, Italian troops start making their way to Ethiopia, into Ethiopia. And the Ethiopian army faced them, but they were just not prepared for modern European warfare at this point. Um, the Italians used air power, and this this kind of sounds like it's right out of World War One combined with World War Two almost, but the Italians basically crop dusted the Ethiopian troops with mustard gas. And um, the Ethiopians suffered three times as many casualties as the Italians. A lot of the world, though, considers the stand made by Haile Selassie and Ethiopian really brave and noble, though. It's what makes um, Haile Selassie Time Magazine's Man of the Year in 1935. People are impressed that uh, they're they're mounting a fight against something so overpowering. Yeah, I think they almost saw it as like him taking a stand against the whole Nazi fascist power out there. Um By May of 1936, though, the Italians made their way into the Ethiopian capital, and they proclaimed Ethiopia part of the Italian empire. So Haile Selassie was forced into exile. Yeah, and that June, he goes back to the League, and this time he's a little more ominous. He says, quote, it is us today, it will be you tomorrow, which is extremely prophetic, coming in 1936 on the eve of World War II. Um, So, of course, in exile, he has to take refuge somewhere outside of Ethiopia. So he goes to England for about five years. But it's interesting, Mussolini's own ambition to um, fulfill that fascist doctrine and acquire more territory is eventually his undoing in Ethiopia, at least. Right. In 1940, he sends this enormous army to invade neighboring Somaliland, which was a British territory at the time. And... The British, though they had fewer troops, actually answered with a pretty well-organized and well-played counteroffensive. I think the Italians lost something like 290,000 soldiers through either being killed, captured, or wounded. 
And this managed to drive the Italians out of East Africa altogether, including Ethiopia. Yeah. So with Britain triumphant, uh, Haile Selassie got to return home. And he was restored to the throne and proceeded to govern for 40 years. And he was welcomed home by Winston Churchill himself, who sent a welcome home cable in which he said, quote, Your Majesty was the first of the lawful sovereigns to be driven from his throne and country by the fascist Nazi criminals, and you are the first to return in triumph. Um, so that would make a really nice end for a podcast. It I would. Guess. A nice positive note. Yeah. Um, kind of like a, a fairy tale podcast. Um, but unfortunately, it's it's going to keep going for better or worse. Um, yes, there are more twists and turns to this story. Definitely. So Haile Selassie, as emperor, does a lot of good things in his time as ruler of Ethiopia. He implemented some social, economic, and educational reforms, for example, um, established sanitation programs, provincial schools, national universities, and even encouraged some students to study abroad Just and continue their studies there. Hint, hint, that's partly his undoing. Yes, it is. Um, he also played a significant role in the later years in establishing the Organization of African Unity. He established a constitutional government as well, but the constitution, and this is part of the problem too, is that it gave him most of the power. Yeah, um, so it's kind of a, an outward constitutional government. Um, so, you know, we've got some reforms in there. Some good things happening. Yeah, some things to give him credit for. But some people didn't like the way he was running things. And part of that was that the regional rulers, or at least a lot of them, felt threatened by his centralization of government. He felt like, uh, or they felt like, Selassie was taking power away from them and giving it to the lawmakers in Ethiopia's capital. Um, and a lot of Ethiopians who lived in developing areas, you know, lived outside of the cities, uh, thought that too many privileges were going to the nobility, which to make matters worse, a lot of these um, landlords, these the, the nobility, the people who owned much of Ethiopia and were largely absent, also happened to be related to the emperor. So, so nobody likes to see that. No, not at all. To add to this, there were some people who thought that the strides that the government did make were just too slow and unevenly distributed. Students in particular, especially those students we mentioned who studied abroad, they complained that Ethiopia's social, political, and economic developments were way too slow. They had studied Marx and had all kinds of ideas of their own about land reform and equality. But they weren't the only ones. Workers, teachers, soldiers, they all wanted Ethiopia to catch up to modern times, too. So it's ironic. We see sort of from the beginning to of our podcast to now, he seems to have come full circle. At first, he was thought of as the progressive leader modernizing the country, and now he's the exact opposite. Yeah, everyone advanced beyond him, it seemed, to to some people. I guess that's what happens when you rule for 40 years or, or more. Um, so there were a few revolts and rebellions, of course, if, if you have these unhappy people. But the most serious of these revolts occurred in 1960. Uh, the emperor was away visiting Brazil, and his imperial bodyguard staged a coup 
a lot of university students supported it, and they even managed to seize the imperial palace. Fortunately for Haile Selassie, the army and the air force remained loyal to him, and they squashed the rebellion pretty quickly. Um, but he knew that that things weren't stable, that his position was no longer stable, too. No, even before this, he tells an American committee in 1960, and this is a quote from him, the tide which is sweeping Africa today cannot be stayed. No power on earth is great enough to halt or reverse the trend. Its march is as relentless and as inexorable as the passage of time. Yeah. So. so so he knows he's at risk and Ethiopia is at risk. And as the 1960s were on, this resentment really just continued to grow. And there were a few issues added to that. One was Eritrea, which even though it was legally an independent country, it was absorbed by Ethiopia in 1962. And for Ethiopia, this seemed like a pretty good deal because it gave them access to the sea, which everybody wants their country to have access to the sea. How no, you convenient. You can defend yourself better. Yeah. Um, but a lot of Eritreans opposed it from the start, and they formed the Militant Eritrean Liberation Front, which the acronym for that is ELF, um, to to protest this being absorbed into a country that they they didn't want to be part of. Right. And there was something else that happened that kind of added to Haile Selassie's unpopularity at that time. Majorly added to it. There was a famine caused by drought, which wasn't that unusual in Ethiopia. But the famine that occurred between 1972 and 1974 killed several hundred thousand Ethiopians. And many felt that Haile Selassie just didn't really do enough to help people. He, they suggested also that the government had tried to cover the whole situation up. Yeah, and so there were protests, and the situation became really desperate. I mean, starving people and a, potentially a government cover-up is going to make the populace really angry. And on September 12, 1974, the emperor was deposed, finally successfully deposed, in a revolution led by a Marxist colonel named Mengistu Haile Mariam. And some accounts say that Haile Selassie was driven from the imperial palace in the back of a Volkswagen with people in the streets jeering at him. So a really undignified exit for this emperor of 40 years. Yeah, and 11 months later, Haile Selassie was dead at the age of 83. At the time, reports said that he died of natural causes, but many actually suspect that he was murdered. In 1996, his valets testified in court that when they found his body, there was a strong smell of ether in the room, which suggested to them that he had been suffocated or perhaps strangled. Yeah, and Mengistu does give the emperor a burial, so it's it's not as though Haile Selassie's body is destroyed or lost immediately. Um, but he's said to have interred the body vertically, head down, next to his office latrine, and then covered it with two feet of concrete to, quote, deter a ghost who has reason to be restless. And this is pretty unrelated, but I couldn't help but think of Dante's Inferno. This is the punishment for simony, which I guess if you think about it long enough with Messiah and Emperor stuff thrown in, you could you could work out some sort of connection there. But um, clearly a very undignified burial. No, it wasn't. But he did get a more dignified burial later on. His body was exhumed in 1992 after the fall of Mengistu's government. And at that time, he wasn't buried right away. His body, his remains, I should say, there wasn't a body at that point. His remains were put into a small coffin that said 
do not open. They put a sign that said do not open because they weren't quite sure what was going to happen with really it yet. It's really weird, isn't it? I mean, it's a, a little sign. strange. Um, and there are a few attempts to bury him, you know, get this do not open box in the ground somewhere. But things just kept on getting in the way. There were arguments about how the funeral should be run, you know, whether it should be this state funeral for a former emperor or some sort of hush-hush private family affair. And I think once when they tried to hold it, elections got in the way. So things kind of kept putting it off. But it finally happened in November of 2000, and it was attended by one of his daughters and many, many grandkids. And Bob Marley's widow was even there. There were a few Rastafarians there. Although it's interesting to note that uh, most Rastafarians don't believe that Haile Selassie is dead. Oh, yeah. How about that? But Bob Marley's widow does, if she was at the funeral, I would assume. Well, maybe she just came to pay her respects in general. Yeah. But in addition to them, I think there were somewhere around 10,000 to 15,000 people as the total turnout. So not nearly as large as you might think it would be. Decent, I guess. But But not a tiny family funeral either. Right. And there was this great uh, 2001 story in the Canadian magazine Saturday Night, and it follows one of Haile Selassie's grandsons, Beeda McConan, who was living in Canada at the time, through all the events of the funeral, and he kind of recounts his time growing up with the emperor and... I just wanted to mention it because I thought it was a really cool story, and it really, I think, shed a lot of light on who Haile Selassie was. I mean, we've been recounting throughout this episode what he did, but— What kind of man was he? What kind of man was he? So just to end off the podcast, since it's been kind of a sort of depressing end and decline, we wanted to just say a few things about who this guy was. Yeah, he was a workaholic. That's probably not too surprising. Um, He was friendly with President Tito of Yugoslavia, who would actually convince him to take vacation. So that's pretty bad if you have like a fellow president having to tell you to to kick off at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, but he did do it. He would go on vacation and take all his grandsons and daughters with him or the ones that were around at the time. And um, so he had a little fun now and again, I guess. He also was said to have a gravitas that made even close members of his family fall silent. So imposing presence. Mm-hmm. He was also very concerned about decorum. He didn't want you to interrupt his morning exercises, for example, because he thought that no one should see the emperor doing something so undignified. So his grandson in this article relates like running in in the morning to go visit him. And he said, sometimes it'd be great and you'd run in there and everything would be cool. But if you interrupted him during his exercises, (laughs) you would definitely get in trouble for that. Just imagining the barbells dropping or something, (laughs) hollering. Um, but he he did like his grandchildren. I mean, that has probably already come across with these family visits and stuff. Um, he spent a lot of time with the kids. And his grandson said, quote, you could ask him about the most serious aspect of politics when you were seven. He would answer you as if you were his equal. And he'd question you and challenge you so you could see the other side. So um, I guess he does seem to have an interest in youth and education that's pretty consistent throughout his reign. And um, that goes along with treating a kid like somebody who can converse as an equal with you. And a really caring side, too, I think. Um, I was telling Sarah earlier about the story and how he mentions the emperor himself would pour the grandkids' milk in the evenings So they would all kind of gather, and he would give them their evening milk himself. and The milk ceremony. Right. But the grandson mentioned that 
most people had left by the time the revolt came around. So, you know, he he had thought he would leave too. But then when he came down to get the milk one night, there were only two of them. And Haile Selassie said, two grandkids left, right? And Haile Selassie said, is it just you two tonight? And he said, the grandson in the story, Beata, he he realized at that point that he had to stay because there wasn't anyone else. So very quite loyal touching, grandson. very loyal grandson. And so just that's just to kind of give you, I guess, show that there are two sides to the story. Some people still disagree with his policies during his reign, but there may have been another side to him too. Yeah. So you can have the family man, the popular ruler, the unpopular ruler, and mm-hmm. the messiah. A lot going on. In, yeah, a lot going on. A very complex man, but a really interesting one to research. Thank you so much for joining us today for this Saturday Classic. If you have heard any kind of email address or maybe a Facebook URL during the course of the episode, that might be obsolete. It might be doubly obsolete because we have changed our email address again. You can now reach us at historypodcasts at iheartradio.com and we're all over social media at Missed in History. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Listener.